Uh, check it out. We're in a, a series in the Ten Commandments, and today we are looking at the Seventh Commandment, which says, you shall not commit adultery. And, uh, and so that's Exodus 20, verse 14. Uh, as we look at that, I'm going to start with a story, and we're going to tell you the story, the story of someone that's familiar in Scripture, uh, the story of one of the central uh, figures in all of Scripture, the story of King David. You can find David's narrative around 1 Samuel chapter 16. And uh, what we learn about David is that he's the, he's the runt son, the seventh son uh, of Jesse, uh, a prominent, not so prominent man there uh, in, in Israel of the tribe of Judah. And uh, God commissions the prophet Samuel to go and seek out someone to anoint as king because uh, Israel's first king, Saul, had failed God through just uh, lack of integrity and character. And so David comes and uh, Samuel comes and goes through the whole list of of David's brothers and eventually uh, says, you know, looks at David and says, this this can't be it. And God says, hey, you look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. This is the man. Pour some oil on his head, anoint him. And it says the spirit of God came, rushed into David. And he was really, uh, you know, at from that point inside and soon to be on the outside, the king of Israel in many ways. Uh, David is known in the Bible as uh, a man after God's own heart. Those are words that God himself says about David, which is pretty cool. Um, David wrote many of the Psalms. Uh, A couple of the songs that we sang even this morning have refrains that have a little bit of the words from the Psalms in them. And so David is very much a poet. But uh, many of you that have read a little bit about David also know that he wasn't just a poet, a psalmist. He was a warrior, someone that God had equipped uh, with his hands, you know, tear bears apart as he was growing up as a shepherd to, to, to protect the things that God had given and put in his hands. One of the things that's interesting about David's life is that we see in his narrative is that David, uh, he learned, he knew how to submit. Somehow uh, he had it in him to, to be loyal, to do the things that he was required to do as, as a son, as a shepherd, as as king, uh, as someone that was subordinate to other men. We see that, uh, you know, King Saul was definitely not a good king in any stretch of the imagination, but yet David was submitted to him. Saul, uh, at one point, uh, started coming after David to kill him, and David had many opportunities to, uh, to return the favor, to actually take Saul out, and he chose not to because he knew that King Saul was God's anointed. But here's a lesson that we learned through David's life. We learn that sin takes you farther than you are prepared to go. You hear that? Sin takes you farther than most of us are prepared to go. So we're going to look at just a few words from first, uh, Second Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to have these words on the screen. You can read them out loud with me. Just the first eight, eight verses. Uh, let's read this together. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants. I don't hear y'all... I don't hear y'all talk, reading with me. Y'all reading? All right, start over. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, It's not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, 
the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you for the gathering of your church. The church gathers today. She was scattered all week, and it's, it's just a refreshing feeling for those who are uh, the people of God to come together in corporate worship, to sing together, to recite scripture together, to hear uh, your word both preached and applied. And so, God, we do that today in obedience to the scriptures. Uh, Lord, as we, um, we look at this very sensitive uh, verse of scripture, do not commit adultery, we um, God, our ears are open uh, that you would um, look at our own lives, pierce our hearts even, and, uh, and show us those areas where we have been violators of this commandment of committing adultery. And God, we pray that we would sense in it not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of it as well as you apply it to our hearts. Not only convict us of sin today, Lord God, but we pray by your gospel that you would draw us to you and that we would sense uh, your mercy toward us, those who believe, but also your forgiveness and your gracious grace. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. And so very quickly, as you finish David's life, uh, not just his life, but this incident with, uh, with Bathsheba. So Bathsheba is pregnant and she tells David, and that cannot be a good thing because he's the king, he's married, she's just a commoner with her own husband, and her husband is out to war. And so what does David do? He goes and he sends out to Joab, the commander of the army, and tells him, get Uriah back here. I need him to come and have some conjugal rights with his wife so I can cover this up. Uriah comes back, but Uriah, being a loyal soldier, um, friend of David, actually, um, refuses, because the law says if you're a soldier out to battle, you aren't supposed to be, you aren't supposed to have these conjugal rights with your wife. And so Uriah, one night he sleeps outside of his porch. The second night he hangs out with David's servants. The third night, David gets him drunk and he still won't go and sleep with his wife. And so David, I mean, he's just left. What am I going to do? I mean, I've created this mess. And so he writes a letter, seals it up, gives it to Uriah and tells him, take this to Joab, the commander of the army. And the letter says, push Uriah all the way out to the front lines and let be whatever happens. And so Uriah, get, I mean, he, he gets put at the front of the line where the, the fiercest part of the, uh, the battle is. Actually, they're, they're setting siege to a particular city, and Joab has him get clo- uh, close to the wall of that city. The, the arrow shooters uh, fire down, and Uriah is killed in battle. Uh, when you think about what's going on in the text in regards to David and his sin, um, he had plenty of opportunities to repent. Think about it. Think about how just, you know, temptation comes upon you and then uh, God in his grace gives you opportunity to make right the thing that you've done wrong. Uh, David could have repented, repent simply meaning, you know, noticing your sin and turning from it and, and, and doing what's right in that regard. Uh, from the very moment that he got Bathsheba pregnant, he could have, you know, acknowledge his sin, acknowledge it to God, acknowledge it to to Uriah, and whatever happened, happened. He could have 
uh, repented when uh, they brought Uriah back. He could have just, conf- um, you know, face to face, husband to husband and said, hey, man, I've messed up. And, I, you know, there's no way to cover it up. I've, I'm the king and I shouldn't have done this. And God is going to repay me. Uh, he could have repented when he got Uriah drunk. He could have repented when he sent the letter. Really, we see this downward spiral that really ends in just a mess. And here's the quandary that, that I seek when I peer into, you know, just this little scene of David's whole narrative. David refuses to kill an unrighteous king. King Saul, a, a, a man that's just decrepit and is trying to kill him. Yet David goes to great lengths to kill an innocent man, a, a loyal man, a man that's his friend and that was a servant of his own army so that David can in turn take his wife. And that just tells us how great sin is and the manifestation of that in the heart of man. But I would tell you there is therein is the sin of adultery. Um, and David's, uh, you know, his his this part of his narrative is one of the greatest examples of why God gives us the seventh commandment. I think the overarching theme here is that sin always has consequences. I think the big deception of our lives is that we can we can do things in private that won't affect anybody else later. You know, I did this. Nobody else knows about it. I don't have to tell anybody else. It's just affecting me if it's going to affect anybody. And I, I think the, the verdict of that would be, you know, wrong with the exclamation point. That's not really how God sort of works sin out of us. Sin always has consequences. I think it's very true all of us reap the things that we sow. So we see in David's life uh, this very fact. Uh, in fact, what happens in, in the rest of the narrative, or Uriah gets killed. Some of David's own men get killed as they're pushing Uriah up to the front line. Uh, later on, David's son born to him in Bathsheba will die. God just takes the son immediately after he is born. David's family is plagued with all kind of dysfunction for the rest of his life to the, to, the, to the extent that David's oldest son, Absalom, sort of just goes, becomes a rebel and kicks David out of his own kingdom. David loses his own privilege of kingship for a short amount of time. I mean, just havoc ruins David's, um, David's life from this point on to the rest of his life. And so the seventh commandment, really isn't about sin in the general aspect. It's, it's about specific sin. It's about sexual sin uh, in marriage. It is, in many ways, a prohibition of sex outside of the confines of marriage. Uh, so in case you know it, this is going to be the most profound statement that I will say for the rest of the morning. If you did not know it, sex is very powerful. Y'all know that? Y'all old enough to know that? All of uh, all you have to do is turn on the TV. Um, everything that we see on TV to include the commercials is laden with sex. When you're driving, just peek up at every billboard, every billboard that you see. And you'll see that they're teasing us, usually with an image of sex. Uh, if you're brave enough to do this, look at the magazines as you're checking out of the grocery store and see that no one has clothes on on the front of those those magazine covers. All right, guys, you just turn your head. Just keep your keep your your head forward. Um, sex is all around us. It dominates. Uh, it's the dominant topic of all of our culture. And I think for that, it's, it's fair to say sex is powerful. Um, I started with, with David's story in David's narrative and this particular part of his narrative in, uh, you know, as he's committing the, uh, the sin of adultery, because the seventh commandment above all is a prohibition against sexual sin in marriage. 
But just like the other commands that we have studied, um, Jesus is revealing the depth of this commandment. At least he's going to get that. That's where we're going to get to. We're going to see uh, the, the level that Jesus takes this in our life, that it's not just sex outside of marriage that, is a, that the, the commandment is prohibiting us to do. It's the, the depth of the law. It's really the spirit of the law. In the case of the seventh commandment, uh, while, whereas it only mentions the sin of adultery, it includes a wide range of other sins. And we're going to uh, look at a couple of those here in a couple of seconds. Um, I want to ask and answer one question this morning. One question. And that really is, what is this commandment all about? And then we're going to look at a couple of implications. But before, uh, in particular, before we can understand what the seventh commandment is about, we have to understand what God has designed in marriage. So let's look a little bit at marriage. What is marriage? Uh, this is a definition that comes from uh, a pastoral ethics course that I took in seminary. And I think it's a, a very appropriate uh, definition. A mutually exclusive, what is marriage? A mutually exclusive long life commitment between husband and wife, a one flesh union based on faithfulness and loyalty. This is uh, not only is a very good definition of marriage, every word is important. And those of you that are paying attention to the, the, the discussion, ongoing discussion politically and socially in our country knows that every one of these words is contentious with those who don't have a biblical view of marriage. A mutually exclusive um, relationship rules out polygamy. I mean, you just can't have a whole bunch of partners in the relationship. That's what it's saying. Lifelong commitment suggests that a marriage is not just a, a civil contract that the state legalizes, that we sign a piece of paper, someone pronounces us married, and then we're married. It's more than that. It's, the Bible would say marriage is a covenant. A marriage between, a relationship between a husband and a wife obviously would be very contentious here. When the Bible says husband and wife, uh, the Hebrew and Greek words there for husband and wife are man and woman. One flesh union suggests the physical activity, sexual intimacy of a marriage. But the key word there is union, unity. Uh, the Bible sees uh, the relationship between a husband and a wife not just being physical, but it being emotional and economic and spiritual. And lastly, when a marriage, uh, a relationship that's, uh, is based on faithfulness and loyalty, it's saying that in, in very, many, very much ways, your marriage is sacred. It's, it's ordained by God and commissioned uh, on the earth by him um, for many reasons. But, you know, primarily we see the purposes in Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24, um, yeah, there it is. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Uh, this lines up with the definition that I just gave you of, of what marriage is. Uh, pay attention to, to a couple of different words. It says, a man leaves his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. The word hold fast is this idea of uh, leave and cleave. It, it really is a picture of I'm going to grab hold and not let go. And so a relationship between a husband and a wife, a marriage, it's like you're super glued together and there's no substance can, that can undo you. OK, does that make sense? Uh, at least that's what it's supposed to be. 
the suggestion here is that marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant. And uh, a covenant in scripture is uh, the thing that actually creates the relationship. A covenant ties two people together, but it also ties them together with God. A covenant um, is unconditional. It's not based upon what I do or what I don't do. I mean, aren't most marriages transactional like that? Aren't most relationships transactional like this? Tit for tat, you do this, I'll do that, okay? A covenantal marriage isn't like that. I'm bound to you for better or for worse, in richer or poor, until death do us part, not based upon what you do, but regardless of what you do or don't do. A marriage is a covenant. A covenant, it doesn't expire. And more importantly, it's regulated by God. The other half of this verse and they shall become one flesh. That's the sexual intimacy of marriage. But it's also you being one in everything. How you raise your kids. Are we going to homeschool or send our kids to public school or private school or charter school? How are we going to spend our money? I mean, who's going to clean the house? Who's going to make the food? That's what this I mean, that's what this verse means. It's not just physical intimacy. It's intimacy. It's unity in everything. And then God says, and a man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. There's no better verse in the Bible like this that talks about your relationship as husband and wife. It means that you, it's, it's your opportunity to be absolutely vulnerable, but still be accepted. I wake up, my breath stinks, my hair looks, well, I don't have much hair. Those of you that have hair, your hair is just all over the place. And just like anybody that saw you in that condition would just like reject you, but not the covenantal spouse that God has given you. That's really what marriage is. Here's the key thing about this verse. God said it. Moses wrote it down. Jesus says it a couple times. Paul repeats it. This verse is five times in the Bible. It shows you its precedence in regards to a biblical view of marriage and why it's so important. The Christian view of marriage is an illustration of something that's far more significant and greater. The, The Christian view of marriage is an image of the gospel. It's just not a husband and a wife or a man and a woman hooking up. It's a picture of something that God is showing us from beginning to the end of Scripture. Ephesians 5, Paul says, Scripture, scripture says marriage is a picture of Jesus and his church. Paul says, uh, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so the love and covenant that a husband and wife shares is a little foretaste of a smaller image of how God cares for sinners like you and me. And so when the world sees a husband and a wife and not just the ooey gooey kissy, you know, kind of love that, but also the grace and the forgiveness and, uh, you know, just reconciling when things don't go quite so right because they don't always go quite so right, then Behind the hood of that, they are attracted to the God that covenants you together. The way Jesus relates to sinful people is like a romance so that when a spouse approaches you and gives themselves radically and wholly in body and soul to you and you alone, it's supposed to remind you of something else. Principally, the way that Jesus on the cross gave himself to you radically, wholly in his body and his soul to show the love of God to wretched people like us. And so what does it mean to commit adultery? The simplest answer is that adultery is marital infidelity. 
Adultery is sexual intercourse that breaks the bonds of a marriage covenant. Uh, it would be fair to say that adultery is heinous. That's the picture the Bible paints. And that's a harsh word, but it's probably the right word because the view that we get from you know, biblical theology of, of, of adultery is that it's the greatest sexual sin because it's not just you cheating, it's you breaking covenant. It's like covenant treason. It's you cheating on your spouse, but you're also cheating on God. It's a rejection of the divine grace that God has sanctioned in marriage. But here's the sad news, and I say this very lightly. Chances are in a little crowd like this, there's some of you that have experienced adultery. Even you perhaps have been the adulterer or you've been on the receiving end and are under the weight of it because it happened to you. This, this devastating triangle of an offense against your soul, against your spouse, uh, most, most importantly against God, the one who created sex. And, you know, he's the caretaker of our human souls in the first place. And so in the Old Testament, the penalty for uh, sexual sin, particularly adultery, was, was severe. I mean, it was like death. I mean, you died. Leviticus 20 verse 10 says this. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. God's, I mean, God is ruthless. But having sex isn't the only way to commit adultery. The command, like all the others, is much broader and deeper than most of us usually think. So what's forbidden? Here it is. Everything that is um, everything that causes adultery, everything leading up to adultery would, would be included in, in this sin and therefore is uh, forbidden. Any sex outside of God's original design. What's God's original design? Genesis 2.24. Marriage is one man, one woman in covenantal relationship with each other. Anything outside of that in a sexual context is considered adultery. In the New Testament, the word for sex outside of marriage for a man and a woman is porneia. It sounds familiar to most of you because it's the root of the word pornography and fornication. Um, porneia would be the, drunk, uh, the, the junk drawer word that means any sex outside of marriage of a one woman, one man relationship. All right, so I'm going to test you out here. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that porneia even includes, I mean, just thinking about fantasizing, not, not even having sex, just thinking about it and like manipulating these images in your mind with someone that you're not married to. That's what Jesus takes it. So, if it's, a, if it's a sexually erotic event, it's reserved for man and woman united in marriage. That's what Jesus would say. Um, so, some, so say someone says to me, well, what about oral sex? All right, I'm getting a little heated here. I know. I'm, I'm going to calm down in a minute. So really, unless you're Bill Clinton, um, then most people are going to say, well, I mean, that, that's kind of a sexual act, right? And so if it's a sexual act, the answer is yes, it's porneia, sexual adultery. Uh, say you're a young single couple, and uh, this young single couple says, but, but what if we don't go all the way? What if we just like do some heavy petting and, you know, some oh, naked and all that kind of stuff like that? And here's what I would say. I would say, again, if, you're, if what you're doing is sexual, um, more importantly, would you do it with your grandmother watching you? How about that one? 
All right, say you got another single couple, and they say, but we really love each other, and our sex is just an expression of our love. And I would say, that's absolutely great, but have you united in marriage yet? Then what you're doing is not biblically permissible. It's porneia. It's, sexual, it's adultery. Suppose another couple says, I mean, we're engaged and, you know, we're engaged. I mean, we're almost we're almost there. Right. We might as well just go ahead and get started. Make sure it works. Um, and, and of course, I would say um, is, is being engaged different from being married. And most people would say, yeah, it's, it's kind of different. We're not legally married yet. Um, and, and here's the thing is. If it's like buying a house. You can sign a contract for a house, but how many of you know you can't actually move your stuff into the house and like call it your own until you close? And so if you're engaged, you haven't closed the marriage with a ceremony. You know, this is, you know, husband, man, kiss your bride. I pronounce you husband and wife. I mean, you're still like playing. What about friends with benefits? I mean, that's like the cultural norm, right? All right. That's like that's kind of like a stupid question. What about what about homosexual marriage? This is this would be a contentious issue to have in and outside the church. And again, think about how we define marriage. Marriage is one man, one woman, obviously a contentious issue in culture today. But sex outside of a one man, one woman marriage would be considered porneia. Okay, so. All right. I could go on. These are some examples for you to, to whet your appetite. I did not name them all. I, I did not name them. I didn't even come close. Here's a couple more. I'm just going to run through these. Did I mention premarital sex is, is adultery? If I did not go outright say that one, I just need to say it. Premarital sex, polygamy, sex between, you know, multiple partners, bestiality, prostitution, sexual violence like rape, pedophilia, incest, bullying, any kind of sexual abuse within marriage would be included in adultery. Forcing a spouse to do something against their will or that's against their conscience would be in the periphery of adultery. You guys, I mean, did you hear that? All things that cause or lead up to or towards adultery. Uh, These would include lesser sins that head in that direction, like inappropriate intimacy, like in the office space, between a neighbor, between opposite sex, or perhaps even same sex. The emotional support that we sometimes give to those who are around us, you know, just somebody needs to be consoled. Just lean on my shoulder. I let you cry a little bit. And, you know, then it becomes a hug. It's a full frontal hug. You know, one thing leads to another. Using your body to manipulate another person. I mean, we see that a little bit. Or how about this one? Dressing in a way intended to tease out the lust and desires of other persons. You ever seen the, the muscle guy? With a shirt that's that's like two sizes too small. He's like walking around showing all his stuff. Or you're going through the mall and you see a girl with like her skinny jeans painted on her. Or she's got one of those mini, mini dresses where the dress cuts off like right here at at the midriff and everything else is hanging out and she leaves nothing Nothing to the imagination. You don't have to imagine. All you got to do is just walk by. I shouldn't have been so graphic. (laughs) Lastly, deserting one's spouse emotionally, physically, or sexually. 
This is why sex outside of marriage is adultery. Adultery is considered bad, if you haven't guessed it. But that's not all the Bible says about adultery. Uh, Jesus actually takes this and applies it to our hearts. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at uh, a few verses here. Matthew 5. We were in Matthew 5 last week. Uh, of course, this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He's standing on a mountain, and he's giving a long sermon, really talking about the kingdom of God. And when we come to verse 27, uh, he actually takes this seventh commandment, and he applies it to our hearts. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. I mean, that's, these verses are bound to cause a little bit of angst because it sounds kind of strange when Jesus gets into the part about cutting stuff off right. But I mean, think about it. Look, This is what he's saying. He's like, um, even if I look at a woman, of course, he's orienting this to men because men are, uh, all people are visual. God gave us eyes for a reason, and it's not a sin to actually look. It's, it's actually not a sin to desire. God gave us those desires so we would procreate and, and, and have more kids and stuff. But he says, I mean, even if I look, I've committed adultery, and and, and then he starts talking about just, it would be better for me to like pull my eye out. Can you imagine somebody just like, uh-oh, I'm getting ready to sin because this gorgeous woman is walking by. I'm just going to pull this thing out and just, just drop it. <laughs> or I'm going to cut my hand off rather than just, you know, gratify myself with, with my hands. I mean, that's just, that's extreme stuff from Jesus. Say you're in a church service, not this church. But say like the mega church I came from where I was a pastor on, where sometimes we have unsaved women come in with the, with the spray painted on skinny jeans or the midriff uh, length dress. And uh, and it would have been as if you could just see the eyeballs just falling out of guys heads as they're turning, watching these women walk down the aisles. I mean, that's 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 what Jesus is saying. And so this is bound to cause some angst. With us, this is, this is what Jesus is saying. First, he's not saying don't desire, uh, but he is saying don't lust. And here's what lust is: it's it's mentally going through the sex act with someone who's not your spouse. It's like the videotape in your mind that takes the image that you see, and you're maneuvering it, and you're putting yourself in it, and it, you know you're using the image of that person uh, to fulfill your own sexual dream in, in a sense. Here's what Jesus is getting at. Sex has a way of just taking over our lives. Really, sex very quickly can become a God to us. It can become an idol. Remember back in the first commandment where we talked about um, God not having, uh, you'll have, uh, there'll be no other gods except for me. Uh, the, the overarching theme of the first commandment was one of idolatry. God does not take, you know, being a, a lesser God over all these things that we place Above him. And so an idol in scripture is whatever you delight in the most, whatever you would tell yourself you need the most. If I have this, I'm going to be happy. It's what you obey the most. It's whatever commands your obedience. And for many of us, sex is that thing. When we have the opportunity for romantic love and sex, uh, it's, it's what we feel, feel like we couldn't do without. 
And if you are like that, then perhaps um, it's very easy for you to, to get into an adulterous relationship because this sex is driving you. So, uh, so really, if you're like this, you'd be willing to, to, to get that feeling, get the opportunity from anywhere. It's a girl who uses her body, is willing to give her body away to get attention from a guy. It's a guy, uh, like many other men, that the thing that commands their obedience is, is sex. And so he's, he can't quit looking at internet pornography. Uh, lust and desire call him, and when it calls, he's going to come running. He answers. And that really is what happened to David. Okay, that, I mean, that's all that happened to David. David had a temptation. He was where he was not supposed to be. Uh, he should have been with his army, leading it in battle, and he found himself on top of a roof, um, isolating himself from the world, um, doing what he should not have done. Look at these verse two, uh, verse, uh, verse 2 and 3. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. Of course, he finds out, hey, this is Bathsheba. Oh, she's got a husband, and he's one of your soldiers, and he's at war. And even that did not turn David aside. So David's problem was looking at, at Bathsheba as an object of his sexual desire. And that really is simply lusting after sin. This sin by David is compounded when his lust leads to sexual gratification. He actually has his servants bring her to him. He has sex with her, a woman that's not his wife. And, you know, this is a, another story for another day. She actually gets pregnant, has his child. Lust leads to sexual gratification in all of its forms. David was the king and he could have done anything he wanted. For many of us, it's, it's self-sex in all its many forms. And so lust has, I mean, a ton of unhappy consequences. It's expensive. It costs a man his money. It may even cost his life. Look at the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 6. Don't uh, do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. But a married woman hunts down a precious life. I mean, these are those are I mean, these look at these words. The price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. Uh, but when that prostitute gets you, it's like she squeezes you into, into what she wants, and she's going to use you. you. You're set to use her, but she's actually using you. Um, Solomon says, giving in to lust is like playing with fire. Anybody like playing with fire? Ever go to the circus and see that guy playing with fire? Can you imagine? He has an accident. Oops, that fire lands on his chest. This is what the proverb says in the very next verse. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? He likens adultery, sexual immorality to you're going to get burned at some point. Lust leads men and women into shame and disgrace. Uh, a little further on, Proverbs 6, 32 and 33. He who commits adultery lacks sense. It's calling you stupid. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Those aren't kind words. But here's the, the I mean, this is how Paul puts it. And really, this is worst of all. Sexual sin brings us under the wrath of God. First, First Corinthians six, verses nine and ten. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders will inherit the kingdom of God. 
The writer of Hebrews says the same thing in verse 13, verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Those are condemning words, and we're, we're meant to feel the weight of the penalty of violating this command of God. I mean, he wants us to feel the weight of this, but, but this is where God gives us good news. And we, need, we all need good news in this area. The Bible tells us that God gives grace to sinners who repent of their lust and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so immediately after listing all these people who would be eternally condemned because they're sexually immoral, Paul says these great words. He says, and such were some of you. He's, he's talking to people like us who've, who've tasted and seen the, the, um, all the things that a sexually immoral lifestyle and the temptation given to lust, given to full-blown sin can, can lead you. And he's saying, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. What's he saying? He, he's given us the, the, the gospel. He's saying through the, 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 the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God has offered you know, lusty sinners like us a forgiveness that can't be bought because you can never do anything to repay God uh, for the debt that you owe him because of, of your sin, your adultery in whatever little or great means that you've committed it. I would say that God here offers uh, for us in the gospel something that's even greater than forgiveness. He offers us the very Holy Spirit of God to live in us and help us, empower us, but also to conquer our temptation and our lustful thoughts that eventually lead to our immorality. But he's also given us one more thing, a very practical thing for those who struggle in this area. He's giving us not just his presence, not just forgiveness. He's given us marriage. And so for those who lust and burn, definitely outside of marriage, God is commending marriage to you. And those who lust and uh, are committing sexual activities inside of marriage, he's, he's encouraging you, you need a new affection. You need to find a new affection. And that, of course, is, is him drawing himself to you. Four implications, and I'll be done. The first is simply this. Sexual sin is never just about sex. It's never just about sex. It's always connected to the rest of your life. David would never have been in the predicament that he was in. The trajectory of his life would never have changed if David would have been where he was supposed to be as a king with his army out at battle, leading them and doing his job. Instead, David abdicated his role, his responsibility, and in idleness and isolation, he gave in to temptation. And I think that really is the thing that captures some of us sometimes. It really is the same for us. We're all vulnerable, especially to sexual sin, when we isolate ourselves. More importantly, when we isolate, um, you know, just our lives from other people. And let me, I mean, I, I come back to this probably every three or four sermons or so. But, I mean, this is just, uh, the suggestion is we need people. We need people in our lives. We can't be uh, just an island to ourselves getting along in life. You need the community of the people of God. Why do you need them? You need them for fellowship and friendship. You need them for the one another of Scripture. But for stuff like this, you need them. You need people in your lives 
to ask you the question that you don't want to be asked. And honestly, we all need to be asked questions that we don't want to be asked. For a lady, you need to be uh, challenged but also exhorted to not develop uh, emotional relationships outside of your marriage, regardless of how hard it is. And for, for men, definitely you need to be challenged in regards to where your eyes look and what you do with the time when you're not around other people and what you do with your phone and how you're, how you're handling the, the pervasiveness of all that the Internet opens us up to and what's going on in your minds as you're just driving around in a sex-crazed culture. We need people in our lives that can help us and, and uh, press in on us in this particular area. Second implication is simply this. The eye is a window to sinful desire. So we have to guard what we look at, especially us men. And, I, you know, I'm a man, so I'm going to pick on the men. But I would tell you, Jesus is picking on the men, too. When, we, when you come to um, Matthew 5, Jesus is picking on the men in this area of lust. All of us uh, have eyes for a reason to, to, to see. But particularly men, we are sexually aroused um, through our eye gate. Okay, And Jesus is saying um, that that needs to be redeemed. It needs to be redeemed. Godly women can help by dressing modestly. All right. If you don't have two ladies, don't spray paint your skinny jeans on and wear that miniskirt dress. At least don't wear it to church. Be a little bit more modest when you're out in the, in the public as well. I'm not being legalistic. I'm just telling you, I think this is what the Bible would suggest to us as the people of God. But at the same time, we can't blame a man for looking lustfully at a woman because regardless of how a woman is dressed, men, we need to gain control over our eyes. This is what Job says. He says, I will. Uh, I will. What does Job say? I can't find it. I've made a covenant with my eyes not to lust, uh, look lustfully at a girl, which which says um, we can do it, men. I said, we can make a covenant with ourselves and with our eyes and with God's help and with the, the, the community of men around us. We can not lust with our eyes. You can absolutely, absolutely do that. I, I think we live in a day where sexual images are, are all around us. There's no place that you could look. No place. Right in this building, even right here on the athletic field, wherever you go out to lunch, any place in the public, we're going to be bombarded with a sexual image. Not only that. Porn has become the norm, uh, and the greatest danger to all of us is the Internet, because sex and temptation is, is prevalent um, in, that, in that medium. Some of us are like David. Uh, we think we can sin with impunity, that we aren't going to get caught, that what we do in private is private. We, I can engage in a little fancy, fan, fantasy, sexual fantasy. Why not? That, um, that I can look at a little pornography. I mean, who doesn't? All my friends are doing it, even the friends... And perhaps some of my friends in church. And at first it might seem um, quite um, harmless. No one knows about it. I can, come, I can go on and, and work with, without anybody knowing it. I might be able to go to men's group without anybody knowing it. I might be able to come to church and do all kinds of ministry without anybody knowing it. But this is what, I mean, this is what the Bible tells us. People might not know it, but God does. Solomon said, for man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his past, Proverbs 5.20. God sees everything that we do with our bodies. He sees the things that we do with our minds. Um, and Scripture says that God will hold us accountable. And those are meant to, I mean, those are meant to be challenging words to us from, from Scripture. 
So how do we overcome sexual temptation? I already mentioned it here. This, this comes from a famous Puritan, Thomas Chalmers. He says we need a new affection. And by that, he's simply saying that the only way we can conquer the strong temptation of sex is to replace it or overshadow it with a stronger affection. And that stronger affection has to come from Jesus. Okay, this is another sermon for another day, but you need to engross yourself with Jesus. Reading the word, praying, doing the one another scripture, going to the community, getting connected and accountability with other people and flooding your life with Jesus so that the other stuff gets flooded out. The third implication is some of you have messed up sexually. Not necessarily implication. That's probably a fact. Some of you have messed up sexually. I don't always feel obligated to come and remind, uh, you know, just to pretty up the, the, the um, you know, what this, the, the harsh words that Scripture gives us in regards to um, God's judgment of sin. But I do feel, especially with this commandment and how pervasive it is in our culture, that I need to point you, uh, you know, that, that God does redeem your mistake. He can redeem your mistake because we start making them, these mistakes in our current day really at an early age. And so I want to close by just summing up David and his life. So David goes on. He has, um, I mean, Bathsheba has a baby. And David's seer comes to, uh, David's seer Nathan comes to David and approaches him about his sin. And basically he says, hey, Ben, um, you've sinned against the Lord and the Lord has taken notice. And David does uh, the thing that's right. This is in 1 Samuel 12. David acknowledges his sin. I mean, he full open, full blown confesses that he's sinned against the Lord. He cries out to God for mercy. And we see um, we see David's uh, his prayer to God immediately following this uh, this sin in Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your uh, unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out, blot out all my transgressions. Uh, save me from my iniquity. Heal me from my sin, and I'll be quieter than snow. And guess what God did? God still called him a man after his own heart. God, God extended great mercy to David. God forgave him. Were there consequences to David's sin? There were some extreme consequences. We can never hide our sin from God, but you can receive uh, the beautiful redemption of God's uh, uh, his, his mercy and his grace. I think the truth is that wherever you sit in this room, and I'm talking to each, each of you individually, we have all in one sense been violators of this commandment, uh, especially with sexual sin. I mean, we can feel guilty because, I mean, just beginning with Adam and Eve, you know, when they sinned against God, We feel so guilty. We feel so dirty. And we don't know what to do with that. God invites us to to confess our sin. That's the invitation. And and here's here's what he would suggest that you do next. That after you confess your sin, you run to the cross where you can find sacrifice for your sin. That Jesus stands there hanging on the cross, ready to cleanse you because of your guilt and to give you power to start living again for Jesus. And so when, when God confronts us with the guilt of sexual sin, this is the fourth implication, and I'm done with this, we have a choice. We can keep hiding our sin, 
but in that, you're, you're, it's surely at some point going to destroy you. Or you can repent, and God will have mercy. Let's pray. Lord, as we close today, we pray the words that David prayed after his great sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me. Say that. Have mercy on me. O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. The bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen.